Hey everyone, Raven here. Today on Plant Save My Life, we're joined by Darcy Paulding McGrady. Darcy is a patient advocate managing a cannabis certification clinic based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She's also experienced profound success using medical cannabis and psychedelics to treat her anorexia, anxiety, OCD, and depression. So let's go ahead and welcome Darcy to the show. Also, a quick disclaimer, while I make every effort to broadcast correct information, I myself am still learning. I promise to double-check all my facts, but I realize that plant medicine is a constantly changing science and art, so the views and opinions expressed on this show are intended purely for educational and informative purposes. No topics are intended to be construed as medical advice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Darcy, for being able to join us on the show today. Um, If you don't mind just introducing yourself for the listeners. Um, yeah, my name is Darcy McCready. Um, I am currently working in the cannabis industry. I am a lead patient advocate and office administrator at a cannabis clinic that's based in Philadelphia. We have a couple of branches in Ohio and West Virginia as well, but I just run the Philadelphia office. Um, and I am currently in my final year of the Medical Cannabis Science and Therapeutics graduate program from the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. Oh, that's super exciting. I love that. How are you enjoying it so far? Oh, I love it. It's amazing. Um, I have to say it wasn't something I ever imagined doing. I thought that I was going to go to law school after I graduated college. And then while I was planning on studying for the LSAT, I I got a job at the clinic that I actually work at still. Um, and it was just, it was incredible. Um, I, again, like I said, I never imagined myself working in the cannabis industry. I definitely used cannabis before I got that job. And it was something that I incorporated into my life and, and used it as a medicine, but I never assumed that it would be a career for me or, you know, I would pursue a graduate degree in cannabis science. It's amazing. I am actually kind of upset that I'll be graduating in May. So, so far it's been a great experience. No, I definitely feel that as well. Whenever I graduated, I was like, man, I'm kind of sad that this is over because you build such a beautiful network with so many diverse people and everyone's passionate about the same thing. And it's very, very rare that you find, um, I mean, I haven't participated in many graduate programs, but I couldn't imagine that that many people are so passionate, like going to symposiums and going to graduation, just turning around and seeing so many people from different backgrounds, lawyers, people within the cannabis industry, healthcare professionals, therapists, like every odds and ends within people within the workforce that is just passionate about this plan is beautiful. Right. Yeah. And even just like the, the current, the cohort that I'm in, there are people who are um, 20 years old, 70 years old. Some Mm -hmm. people who, again, like you said, pharmacists, doctors, lawyers, some people who have nothing like my degree undergraduate was history. I don't have a science background at all. So assuming, you know, going to this program, I kind of assumed like, Oh no, this is going to be awful. I'm going to be the one person doing terribly, but no, it's just, they, the, the program is accessible for people who have different backgrounds because they want to include those people. And like you said, just the networking that we've been able to do, um, it's invaluable. I've met so many people so far and you would think that maybe you wouldn't be able to meet people in this way since it's an online program. Um, But the, the whole programs, one of their main focuses is just to connect you with people. And so far I have met so many people who not only our friends, but also in the future, like people we could work with and, and collaborate with. So um, yeah, so far it's been, it's been wonderful. And I'm crossing my fingers that maybe uh, you, Maryland does something for a PhD program in the future. You oh, know, I know, I know. <laughs> Dr. Johnson mentioned it briefly, but he wouldn't get it too into it. So yeah, I, I mean, if that becomes something that's available, 
oh, it, just incredible. It would be amazing to even further our educations more in that aspect. Yeah, absolutely. Even just like five years ago, I wouldn't even imagine that there would be graduate, you know, masters and PhD right. programs in cannabis science. So being able to be a part of that, I'm just incredibly grateful. Yeah, no, likewise, me too. And I'm curious, you mentioned a little bit to me about struggling with anxiety and depression growing up, and I'd love to kind of hear how you came into plant medicine. Sure. Um, so like most people, I would say the first time that I interacted with cannabis was inherently social. Um, mm -hmm. I think I was probably 15 years old, um, in some sketchy location with some friends, not really sure what we're, we were doing. I don't know if anyone else had smoked before, so we kind of had to figure it out as we went. Yep. Um, and that was, I mean, a great experience. I had fun, like most people with their first time, um, you know, lots of laughter and it was, it was enjoyable. And I don't think after that, I really pursued it much more. I was pretty young and I, I don't want to say I was a nerd in high school, but I cared a lot about school and, you know, spent a lot of my time studying. I played sports and I just, I didn't think about it that much. Um, but then when I was a little bit older, um, graduating high school, I, I started using it a little bit more with my friends again, totally socially. I didn't really think about cannabis in a medical sense, even though at that time, you know, my whole life, I struggled with, um, anxiety, OCD, depression, and I didn't really put two and two together. Like the way I felt when I used cannabis helped my anxiety, my depression, and my OCD. I kind of just thought of it as a social thing to do, and I didn't really attribute any medical value to it. Um, but then a little bit later in life, uh, I was about 20 years old. Um, that's when I developed anorexia. And it sort of developed slowly and quickly all at the same time. Um, there were other things going on in my life that contributed to it, but I just needed to feel some sort of control. There were a lot of variables in my life that I didn't have control over. And for some reason, I decided, okay, you know, what I'm going to do today is just try to be as healthy as possible. And I want to work out. And it, it just, it started kind of innocently, like, you know, people wanting to be healthy, being more active. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But for me, it became an obsession. So, you know, it was all I thought about. I, I compulsively worked out. I counted all of my food and calories and hated socializing. I didn't want to see people or friends because socializing, there's always food involved for the most part. And having anorexia, the last thing I ever wanted to really be around was food. And it, um, it just really took over my life very quickly because of how obsessed I was with, you know, losing weight and just wanting to quote unquote, feel good about myself, even though I did not feel good at all. I felt terrible mentally, physically, you know, I did not, what I was, the outcome I was looking for, I wasn't getting, <laughs> I was losing weight, but I was not feeling good. And it just sort of exacerbated the problem of my mental health and a decline. Um, so I first really started using cannabis medically around that time. And I think I first started um, when I was about 20, 21, um, my boyfriend at the time, who's actually now my husband, um, but we would smoke together. And again, it was mostly just for enjoyment. You know, I didn't really think about it medically, but then I realized like, oh, wow, I am using cannabis and my anxiety is so reduced. And I also, I'm hungry. Like I want to eat. And that was such a challenging thing for me to even be able to acknowledge that, okay, I'm a, you know, 
I have to eat. I'm a human being. You can't survive unless you eat. But it was such a troubling thing for me to just mentally deal with um, that I would avoid it. And, you know, at some point, again, you have to eat. So I learned that using cannabis made eating so much easier for me. And then it sort of became uh, kind of a habitual thing where, you know, I would smoke pretty much every day at some point because I I had to eat and I could go all day without eating. And, you know, someone with anorexia thinks that's something to be proud of, but obviously I wasn't doing myself any favors. Um, so once I started using cannabis and noticed, okay, th- this has some good benefits for me. I feel good while I'm using it. The depression, anxiety, the obsessive thinking I had to always, you know, be moving and, and, oh, you have to go on a walk right now. You have to go on a run, just all of the obsessions that my anorexia caused for some reason. And I, I'm so grateful for it, but using cannabis just made those things so much less significant in that moment. And while it wouldn't necessarily last after that, you know, like the next day, the same sort of negative thinking would come in and I'd, you know, spend all day feeling bad about myself and, and wanting to lose weight and just do again, all these maladaptive behaviors. Um, But then I would use cannabis again and it kind of was just a light bulb that would go off and make me realize, okay, like if, if you want to live, if you want to be alive and live to do these things that you really want to do in life, because I've always been very ambitious and wanted to to do things other than just exist. Um, I, I told myself, you know, you have to figure out how to do this. You have to at least at a baseline level, give yourself enough food that you can survive. <laughs> and, you know, that wasn't the end all be all because I had it quite the... Um, the peak, I had peaks and valleys along the way, but I consistently throughout my course with an eating disorder used cannabis and my whole family, my friends, people who know me, uh, I think they would absolutely, you know, attest that it, it saved my life and it kept me alive because I, I should have been dead. And now when I'm, I'm much healthier now, this is, this feels like such a foreign part in my life because I don't experience a lot of these things anymore. And I am very healthy and I feel good about life. And I mean, I like food. (laughs) So it does not feel like something that happened to me in this lifetime. But like, I I look back and, and think about the person that I was, and I was so ill, I was so sick and in denial and thought that I could live my life being that level of sick, or I just assumed that I would be in this constant cycle of going to treatment and getting hospitalized and gaining some weight so that I'm kind of healthy and then just, you know, tanking and having that whole thing happen over and over because it happened a lot of times for me. And I'm not sure at what point something clicked for me. And I, I, you know, like I said, cannabis absolutely saved my life. I think the reason why I'm in the place I am now is a variety of reasons. Therapy, um, I recommend everyone in the world has a therapist because they're great and they help you work through so much stuff. Um, but yeah, therapy, you know, family, friends, having good support system has helped me. But to this day, like I, I will struggle with food occasionally. Um, it's more of a thought versus action type of thing. I have a lot of thoughts that might be negative about myself, but I don't usually act on them. Um, but to even interrupt those thoughts, sometimes cannabis is it, it it puts things into perspective for me. It can, 
not only calm me down, but kind of make me see some positive in myself. And that is a very hard thing for me to do. Even to this day, like my entire life, I've just haven't felt great. I've felt insecure and like, I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm a classic type A perfectionist and um, cannabis makes me more mellow. Uh, It makes me want to, I don't know, mess up and move on. I don't, I don't, I don't overanalyze a lot of things when I'm using cannabis and my whole entire day is spent overanalyzing things. My brain is such a pain. It will just go over the same thing over and over and over again and drive me crazy. And cannabis puts that to rest. And again, I never in my life thought that number one, I'd get over my anorexia, but I also never thought that I would have goals in life that I'm actually achieving because I never thought I'd make it this far. And yeah, again, cannabis, like people used to give me a hard time for it when I'd go to parties and stuff because I was always smoking. Like that was me. I was that kid outside. (laughs) Yep. Usually alone or with my one best friend who we were just like two peas in a pod. And I, I, yeah, I got judged. People just thought I was smoking because I needed to get high, but really it made me have fun seeing other people talking to people made me more open and I think that the stigma obviously still exists, but it is very refreshing to see that it's definitely lessening because we're seeing its therapeutic benefits. Uh, People share their stories, like exactly like this podcast, you're having people talk about what it has done for them. And it's not just, this is a fun thing that I can use to get high with my friends. Like this, this is the reason I'm alive. And I'm incredibly grateful that not only do I live in a state with an adult use market and a medical market, but that I have access to it. Because if I didn't, um, I I think things in my life, when I look back, would probably be a lot different and not for the better. There's a lot that you said there that resonates with me. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I mean, that's really intimate. So I really appreciate kind of diving into that. Sure. How, what are treatment approaches for anorexia currently? What kind of treatment did you have to go through either? Mm -hmm in hospitals or any other settings? So honestly, they're not great. <laughs> and I think that um, the treatment programs, I, th- I think over the last couple of years, they have tried to restructure because they, they don't have a very high success rate. Um, usually it's very, you know, therapy based. So I went to several different treatment centers. One of them is called Renfrew and they actually have uh, locations, I think mostly on the East coast, but, but there's more than one. Um, but it's sort of like, you know, they use cognitive behavioral therapy and obviously you have to eat in a very structured way. Um, but that very structured way that they make you eat is almost disordered, which is incredibly ironic because you would think that they wouldn't try to force certain like eating rituals on you. Um, according to eating disorder treatment, if you dip a cookie in milk, that's a, that's a disordered symptom which I think that's kind of normal for like a hundred percent of the people in the world. Like that's common. And you had to eat every single crumb off your plate. Like you couldn't leave anything. And I understand that to some degree because, you know, there's a lot of refeeding that goes on and they need to make sure that you're getting enough sustenance. So that way you're meeting your treatment goals, which some people it's to gain weight. Some people it's to maintain, you know, obviously eating disorders are a spectrum. Um, But it, it just created a very, uncomfortable environment because it's like you had someone standing over your shoulder um, demanding that you eat 
a, a grain of rice if you leave a grain of rice on your plate. And it just was really infantilizing. And a lot of the people who I have encountered when I've been in treatment are adults, you know, 18 to 30 usually. There are some younger kids, but most of them are adults. And it seems like a very backwards way to get someone to start feeling comfortable eating again and listening to your body when you're forcing such rigid rules around food. So that's like, I I mean, I can talk about this for hours because I hated it. And when I was in there, oh man, I like the, the criticisms I had for it were, were aggressive. Um, but I mean, that's just one aspect. Obviously there's group work, uh, you, you know, group therapy, individual therapy, they, they offer psychiatric medication if you need it. Um, but a lot of it is just sort of, it, it, it's not catered to the individual and like any other condition, any other illness, there is some objectivity, but a lot of it is subjective and they sort of treated everyone the exact same. And when, when a lot of people with eating disorders are together, it's competitive. Even if you don't really want it to be, for me at least, I'll speak for myself, inherently, like I felt like I was competing with everyone else, even though what was I competing for? I was there to get healthy. But you compare yourself, your body, your meal plan, your, you know, your vitals, everything is compared. And the treatment centers don't really do a good job of trying to get people to realize it's not a competition. It kind of felt like high school. It was catty. Most of us are women. Um, there were some men I was at um actually a eating disorder recovery center in Denver before, and they were co-ed. Um, but for the most part, it's just, it feels like a toxic environment and their goal is to help you gain weight for the most part, if you need that. And then your insurance cuts you. So it's very, I mean, honestly, the whole thing is kind of dependent on your insurance. I was fortunate that, um, because I, I was, very malnourished. My insurance didn't have a problem with me staying for months at a time. Um, but basically the whole entire program, at least that I've experienced again, not catered to the individual really infantilizing and they didn't really create a safe space. It didn't feel safe. It kind of felt like you were forced to be there, which some people were, um, and you just had to suffer through it. And they didn't really try to make it an experience that people wanted to participate in. You know, a lot of people just kind of passively went through the program. It's easy to, you know, you work those steps, you can work the program, you can get in, get out. And then you're not really doing much to help yourself mentally though. So a big part of it was, you know, they would focus more on the physical than the mental. And then obviously, you know, I ended up back in treatment several times because I didn't care and they didn't seem to care. And I figured why, why would I even bother then? Why am I trying? So it, it just, I think there's a lot of flaws. And I think that again, they're realizing it now because I know a lot of places are changing what their approach is, but uh, it, it wasn't great. <laughs> I could say I'm very happy that I likely will never have to go back. <laughs> Good. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm really glad to know that you're, you know, you're on the other side and everything's better now. Um, I'll say it. It sounds like it's a little bit, it sounds like the treatment was a little bit medieval. I mean, creating yeah, rigid fruit, food rituals, <laughs> from what you've kind of discussed with me and how it links into with anxiety and compulsive disorders, I can understand where eating disorders can all kind of um, tie in together and be a very convoluted, complex thing. So really honoring the individual aspects and all the stuff behind the scenes is really the road to treatment. You spoke on the power of having like your support group around you, a lot of, a lot of helpful friends and your family supporting you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really nice to know that cannabis has also helped you in that journey. And I'm curious, how long were you using cannabis and you would, would you say a medical sense until you would consider yourself recovered? So I was probably, I, th- I would say about like 21 um, because I started using cannabis pretty regularly when I was 20. And that's around the time that my eating disorder developed and was getting pretty bad. And um, yeah, probably around 21 is when, you know, I started using it daily because I, again, it was the only thing that would make me eat. And um, in hindsight, relying so heavily on cannabis to help me eat, I I can see some flaws in that now. In the moment, I didn't. I just figured again, like, well, if, you know, I need to smoke or else I'm not going to eat. So I, you know, and, and I don't think there's a problem with that necessarily, but I think I was ignoring a big, big root of why, you know, why am I not eating? (laughs) Why am I, why do I want to restrict myself this way? And I sort of used cannabis to numb out a little bit from that so that I could eat. But again, if eating was my end goal, I used cannabis to eat again, kept me alive. So I, I don't have regrets there. Um, but I probably used it, I would say I've been recovered. Um, and when I say recovered, I do mean in a physical sense and mostly in a mental sense, um, probably since like 2018. So it was a, it was a significant chunk of time where I was very ill. Um, again, that, that cycle of in treatment, out of treatment, being somewhat barely healthy for a month or two, and then starting that whole cycle over, um, so I, yeah, I mean, I use cannabis through all of that. And then once I did feel like, okay, like physically I was in a healthy spot, you know, I wasn't super underweight. I wasn't malnourished. I was comfortable eating. I didn't need to use cannabis to eat every single time that I needed to eat something. Um, but because it became such a crucial part to how I take care of myself, I just, you know, I kept using it and I I didn't need it every time I ate. I kind of reframed how I used it. Um, I mentioned earlier, it really has helped with my anxiety, with depression, with calming my mind. My brain, again, is just racing at all times. Even when I'm relaxed, like if I have a day off and I'm not doing anything and my husband and I just like want to watch a movie or have a lazy day or something, it is insanely hard for me to do that. And I'm just always feel like I'm, I'm, you know, driven by a motor at all times. So cannabis now helps me relax much more and be able to enjoy the stillness of life. I have a very hard time with stillness. It's just (laughs) anyone who knows me, if you are, if we were face to face right now, like my knee is shaking out of control just because that's, I can't help it. It's who I am. But cannabis slows me down in a way where I can actually appreciate things. I'm more mindful you know, I'm not thinking in the past or towards the future. I'm much more present. And that is also something that my entire life I've struggled with. And being able to utilize something that not only helps me in the past, but it's helping me currently in a different way. Um, it's, I, I can't, it's hard to explain. It really is because again, I never thought that I could sit with myself just with me, just with my brain, just to be who I am in this moment and be okay with it. And I'm able to do that now. So I, I absolutely, I mean, I can't ever see not utilizing cannabis in some way, shape or form and seeing how it's changed, uh, excuse me, seeing how I've changed my use with it and how it's affecting something else in my life that I struggle with. It's just all, it's all the more reinforcing that, you know, this plant has 
incredible properties that can be applied to so many different areas of life. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then what I like to see is how using cannabis, sometimes the actual, it's actual healing as opposed to just masking sometimes as opposed to just numbing through it. Like it can, as you can see now, now you're able to really sit in the present. I think that's something a lot of us struggle with is being able to just sit in the present, not let our mind wander to the future or the past. And then also having compassion for ourselves. So like things like cannabis and things like psychedelics and plant medicine really help us to get to know ourselves and be able to find that compassion there. I'd love to hear about how it was whenever you were experimenting, were you able to find any particular cannabinoids or particular formulations that worked for you best? So at that time, I did not have a medical card and I was basically just getting cannabis from a friend. So I would have loved to actually like know what I was using. I was completely blind to it. And like, honestly, in that moment, at that point in my life, I don't know if I would have paid that much attention to it. I really just felt like, like anything, give me anything that will help me. Um, in, in the present time, I absolutely read labels. You know, I, I make sure I'm getting a a nice full spectrum terpenes. Um, I'm a big fan of a one-to-one THC to CBD ratio. Oh yeah. It's perfect. I think it's the best. And it's really unfortunate that that is a very uncommon thing to find at a lot of dispensaries because we're pushing, you know, the 99% THC, which obviously people want to buy who don't necessarily know what is the most therapeutic or beneficial amount of of THC or cannabinoids to be using. Um, but yeah, now I, I definitely pay attention to that, but one-to-one I'll tell anyone, if anyone asks me what they should get, I always recommend that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm also a big proponent of just like CBD flower as well. Huge fan. Seriously. Yeah. And it's also very underutilized because oh, people yeah. seem, Oh, well, I'm not going to get a high. Well, sometimes you don't need to get high. Like if you exactly. know the therapy property, it's still there. Exactly. You talked a little bit about being able to use cannabis as a medicine. Did, were you talking with your doctors at all or navigating the healthcare system with them at any point during this? So I did. I think originally I I was afraid of the stigma. Um, yeah. for, not from friends. The people in my life knew that I was using cannabis, but I don't think for probably a couple years, I don't think I disclosed that. I sort of assumed like, you know, my doctor was like a family doctor who I had seen for a long time. And, and again, in this moment, I would absolutely tell all of my providers what I was using, because I think it's incredibly beneficial to be open with your doctors about this. Um, But no, I was just afraid of being, you know, getting that label as a druggie, which again, in this moment, that's not a concern I have. I would happily tell anyone that I use cannabis, but I did absolutely kind of think that I would get stigmatized a bit. And, oh, you know, what would my doctor say? Would they tell my therapist or my psychiatrist? Like, would they not give me my other meds that I needed because I was using an illegal substance that I didn't have a med, uh, you know, a prescription for or anything? Um, now I'm definitely open. Um, like I said, I currently have a therapist. She knows what I do for a living. She knows my, my schooling. She knows how much cannabis has helped me. And she has been a great advocate for me being able to use that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would absolutely recommend to anyone tell your doctors what you're using. It's important to have an open communication. And then that way you're both on the same page. But at that time, I just, yeah, I thought that I would get a label and they wouldn't take me seriously or something. 
Yeah, I can definitely understand that. And it resonates a lot with me because I felt the same way talking with your primary care provider. I mean, I'm from West Virginia and stigma is a huge thing there. You don't want to even bring it up because like you said, you don't want to be labeled a druggie. You don't want to look like you're in there just trying to get high or anything whenever it's like, well, I think it's important that you know what's going on my body as my doctor. Right. Um, Now, you mentioned that that the company that you work for is based out of Philadelphia, but you're currently in Denver now, right? Yes. Yeah. So um, my boss is very, very nice. She's amazing. She, um, we actually went to telemedicine with COVID. So we just kind of stuck with that because it worked for us. It worked for our patients. And um, yes, so her main office is in Philadelphia. um, And then she recently opened another one actually in West Virginia and um, Ohio. And I think she's looking for other, other states to branch out to as well. But yeah, I do live in Denver. Uh, I just work remotely. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. With that said, as you know, Pennsylvania, we have 23 qualifying conditions and anorexia isn't one of those. Um, I'm curious is whenever you work with patients, what's kind of the top ones that you see coming through your office for certification, if you can share that? Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, So they made anxiety a qualifying condition, I think in 2018, maybe 2017. Um, Actually, maybe even later, I think 2018, 2019. Um, So that is the biggest one, without a doubt, because before it was approved, people would call constantly and say, I have anxiety. You know, they've read about how cannabis helps with anxiety, even though there weren't a lot of like clinical studies or anything done at that time. Um, Like, you know, they would call and assume that that would automatically qualify them. So when it actually became a qualifying condition, yes, business basically was booming because so many people have an anxiety diagnosis Mm -hmm. and a lot of people use cannabis and they self-medicate, they get it. Um, you know, they use illicit cannabis and they figured I'm using this, it's helping me. Why don't I just get it legally? So that is a huge one. Um, obviously chronic pain. That's probably, I would say the second one under anxiety and PTSD is big as well. So yeah. yeah, yeah. PTSD is, is big. And we actually work with a lot of veterans, which is amazing because, um, veterans, you know, with the VA, they discuss wanting to use cannabis. And sometimes, you know, the VA being a federal entity gives a lot of pushback. But when, when I, um, when I've ever worked with the Philadelphia VA, they've been incredibly receptive and they will recommend their, their vets get cannabis, especially to help with chronic pain, um, PTSD, even opiate use disorder. That's a big one too. Pennsylvania obviously had a really really difficult time with the opioid epidemic. And when they allowed for um, opiate dependency, opiate use disorder to be qualifying conditions, we also got a big uptick of people who had that diagnosis give us a call. So um, a lot of psychiatric conditions um, and chronic pain, chronic pain is a big one because there's so many things involved, arthritis, sciatica, um, you know, people just having joint pain and carpal tunnel, So those are probably the biggest ones that I've seen. And that's kind of been persistent throughout the, I've been working at this clinic for about four years. Um, So throughout that time, those have kind of stayed pretty consistent. Wow. Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, I was just coming, I just came across this article not too long ago regarding a gentleman in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, who was denied um, addiction treatment resources for opioid use because it was determined that he had a medical marijuana card. So he was denied the treatment addiction resources, but Recently, I believe the courts ordered that Governor Tom Wolf's administration has to like open up some of the documents to determine what ratios and how many people are certified for medical cannabis for what particular conditions, which I mean, as long as it's, you know, 
non-identified, I think that'll be really, really powerful information. We can garner a lot of insights from it. Oh, sure. And like, um, like I mentioned before, with the whole harm reduction thing, do we want people being addicted to opioids or do we want people to use cannabis to not be using these things that actually kill people? You know, if we look at it from any other perspective than, oh, well, this person is using uh, cannabis when when they're in treatment, you know, again, there's a lot of subjectivity about how we treat illnesses or how we at least try to 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 manage them. And if someone can get off of a deadly substance that clearly we see across our entire country has caused so much pain and turmoil where, why would there be pushback over that? And even if it's not the end all be all cure to that condition, if it's helping them again, reduce harm, it's really shocking to me that anyone, any doctor especially would push back and want their patient to put themselves in harm's way instead of using something that maybe the doctor doesn't totally agree with. But I think that providers need to be open-minded and just consider what a patient's needs are. And I know that's different patient to patient, but that, yeah, it's just, it's incredibly frustrating to see people struggle when they could utilize something that could be beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. And you won't have nearly as detrimental side effects and you can kind of look a little bit more forward as opposed to either opioid use disorder, but also just opioid adverse. Someone that doesn't necessarily have chronic pain, but they don't want to take opioids, you know? Right. I'm curious whenever you... During the certification company, did you work side by side or with doctors a lot in their healthcare roles? So, um, yes, I do work pretty directly with providers. Um, we have two doctors who do certifications with us, and we have a nurse who's on staff as well. So she usually does like an intake consultation, get some background information on the patient, what their symptoms are, what their um, what their qualifying condition is, and then the doctors do the certification. Obviously, um, so. There's a big, big disconnect for how doctors interact with certifying patients. Um, The doctors that I work with are wonderful people, very smart. Um, One woman, uh, you know, works in addiction medicine. The other one does wound care. So they're, you know, they do a lot of stuff in in the, uh, the medical environment besides just certifying patients, but they don't know a lot of basic information that I mean, from being in this master's program, it's more obvious, and maybe I wouldn't have realized this before, but they just don't provide as much information to the patients that I think a patient needs. A lot of times people don't have any idea what type of cannabis to use, what route of administration they should use, how much they should be using, and obviously doctors can't write prescriptions. So they often you know, try to give as much information as they can to the patient, but the patient's really left to take their card into a dispensary and talk to a bud tender, which of course, bud tenders are helpful, but they're not a medical professional. And they could talk to the pharmacists at the dispensary as well, which is definitely helpful because they can give more, um, you know, targeted recommendations, but patients, they do feel kind of lost. And it's unfortunate because when you're trying to treat your medical condition and you're trying to improve your health, you don't want to be doing that blindly. And I do think that because doctors can't prescribe and because doctors are worried about any ramification to their medical license, saying something that might have some issue in the future and, you know, cause some, some legal problems as well. Um, 
they don't want to say much. And I understand that. But when you are, again, treating your condition with cannabis and you have no idea what you're doing, that's really disconcerting. And it's, it's, I'm sure a whole nother source of anxiety for people who are already experiencing that and who are already trying to figure out what can I do to get myself healthy? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I know my way around the dispensary and I'm still very, very overwhelmed whenever I walk into one. Yeah. There's so, I mean, there are hundreds of products, hundreds. And again, even with education on, okay, what terpenes are important and what are we looking for in THC content? You know, I don't, we don't know everything. I don't know most things. So it's, you're kind of, you feel like you're at a loss and you're just sort of blindly choosing something and hoping for the best. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, I think bud tenders have one of the hardest jobs because they have to be able to distill the very little amount of research we have to a person who is even less educated whenever it comes to cannabis typically. And like I said, I mean, I'm intimidated whenever I walk in. So I definitely feel for people who might not, you know, might not be tuned in as much as you or I am. Yeah, no, absolutely. And people, that's a, a main concern that people have when I speak with them is they they ask specifically, is the doctor going to tell me what to do? And I have to really, you know, obviously I'm not just going to say no and have the, the patient figure it out on their own. So we have to explain, you know, legally he can't, and it would be really, really helpful if he could. But, you know, again, the bud tenders, the dispensary pharmacists, there are resources. It's just unfortunate that Patients have to do so much more to get exactly what they're looking for than with any other medication. And also, you know, having your card in one state doesn't translate to having your card in another state. So people ask all the time, okay, well, I'm going to go on vacation. I'm going to fly on a plane to, you know, Florida from Pennsylvania. Can I bring, can I bring cannabis? And I have to tell them, absolutely not. You cannot fly with that. You know, you can't cross state lines, you're drug trafficking. Technically, you can't do that. And some states with their reciprocal card programs, that's great, but people don't always know that. So, you know, we're giving people a a medical cannabis card, which uh, just, you know, for all purposes, we'll call a prescription because, you know, you're, you have a a, a legal medication that you had to see a doctor for. It's not over the counter and you can't bring that with you when you're traveling. You can't take that if you're going, you know, to the beach for the weekend or visiting family somewhere and we don't do that with any other medication. And it's sort of, it just feels like um, it's very arbitrary how we decide what conditions qualify. And it's very, um, I think, pretty evident that it's not really based on medical evidence and more Absolutely. about policy, politics, politicians, who can benefit from this. And again, who's who's getting hurt here? It's the patient. It's always falling on the patient who is not getting the best type of of patient first care that they should be getting. Exactly. I mean, that was a big motivation to start this podcast was to be able, I feel a lot of the time the patient experience gets kind of lost in the static whenever we talk about policies and regulations and all the things happening either in the dispensary or in the grow room. It's a lot of the time, like you said, the liability falls on the shoulders of the patient at the end of the day. Right. In in this sense, how has cannabis and other psychedelics? I kind of I'm going to pivot the conversation towards psychedelics just a little bit. You yeah. mentioned that you've had a profound experiences with more classical psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD 25, and I'd love to hear your experiences on those. Sure, yeah. Um, I would have to say that uh, the first psychedelic that I tried was LSD. Um, it it was kind of it was fun. It was a great experience. It was a good time, but it wasn't very enlightening. It was more so 
just fun and overwhelming. Um, I did not know what to expect, really. I was with some friends. Um, and again, it was a great time. I, I don't think I've ever laughed so hard in my entire life. Um, so it, it was a, a positive experience for me. But when I actually noticed some, you know, like introspective benefit and, and you know, not to sound cliche, but sort of a life-changing experience, it was with psilocybin. And not the first time that I tried it because the first time I tried it, I was very sick. So I was very in my eating disorder I couldn't have probably picked a worse time to try it. It was just like mentally, I wasn't in, there was a lot of stuff going on in my life that I had to get done and do. It was just a stressful time. And all of a sudden, yeah, I was like, well, let's try some shrooms. My, um, my husband and I did it together and it started as a great, it started great. You know, I had, um, I was having fun. I felt light and, and kind of, you know, I didn't care about all the stuff that was going on that I had to deal with at some point in the future. Um, and then probably a couple hours in, I started thinking about all the stuff that I had to do. Like, oh, I have a paper due in two weeks or, you know, probably like two days, maybe not two weeks. And I, you know, I have to do this tomorrow and I have to do this. And that mindfulness that I can now in my current life experience, I did not have that capability at that time. So all of a sudden I was just full of dread. I felt probably the, it was one of the worst experiences that I felt because it was as if every bad feeling I had in me, um, every negative thought, uh, just every horrible thing that I could possibly have going on in my head just came to the surface. I felt like I was having a panic attack. I was I was incredibly uncomfortable. And it, it was a feeling that I felt like would never end. And while it was a terrible experience, it kind of made me realize that, well, this is, this is what I'm doing to myself. Because... Uh, you know, again, not that I choose to have the thoughts that I have. Obviously, we don't choose how our brains work all the time. But I was, I had such a negative and just scared outlook on so many things in life that I couldn't see positivity. I couldn't see joy in things. And when I was experiencing joy, I had to bring myself back to negative thoughts because I felt like that positive mindset that I was having wasn't going to last. So I didn't want to feel good because I was afraid that that good feeling would be gone. And then I'd just be stuck with my normal negative self. So when I had that that very overwhelming experience using psilocybin the first time, I, I, I kind of felt like, oh, my God, this is this is what my my mental illness is. <laughs> it's just negativity. It's ruminating. It's living in the past and the future. It's not staying present. And, you know, obviously that passed. You know, the feeling subsided and then I carried on with my normal life. And then I did psilocybin a couple other times, I think, in between there. All great experiences. Um, nothing super, you know, life altering. Um, I think I I did yoga during one, one, one of my trips and I felt really in tune with my body. And that was a good feeling as someone who had an eating disorder. And usually, even to this day, I really try to disconnect from my body because I'm not particularly comfortable with it and I never really have been. Um, but that really made me kind of tune in to, to my actual physical self. And that was a realization for me because it didn't come with negative connotation. Like I was content, I was happy, I was having a good time. And I kind of carried that on with me after, you know, later on in, in that, in that day, in that week. And it's kind of something that I kept in the back of my mind. 
Um, but the best experience I had was probably about two years ago. Um, and it was during a good point in my life. Uh, I think I just got accepted to this, the master's program actually. And then I, I got engaged and I think I, I, um, had gone and found my wedding dress. And then I came back home and uh, my husband and I were going to decorate for Christmas or something. And it was just the most content I think I've ever felt in my life. Content with not only myself, but the external variables in my life and feeling like I was worth something. And it sounds super dark and depressing, but I've struggled with that my whole life to feel that I, as a human being, am inherently valuable. Like I have value as a person. I've, I've always had a hard time with just appreciating myself because there's so many things that I've struggled with and so many things about myself that I want to change, which I know is, you know, we're humans. No one's perfect and everyone wants to change in some way. But I just remember I was just sitting on the couch and thinking like, wow, I feel good being me. And that was the first time I think in my entire life I have felt that. And that stuck with me. And I didn't think it would. I kind of thought that, okay, tomorrow I'll be back to kind of like, you know, I'm a pessimist. I absolutely am. I kind of assume the worst in situations and hope for the best. Um, but it just, it changed some some part of my mindset where now when I go about situations, like say I, you know, something happens that maybe is a result of my own doing. Like I didn't do this great on this quiz or, oh shoot, I forgot to do that. My gut reaction is normally criticism. Be be mean to yourself. Say the worst things you can. How could you be so dumb? How could you do that? But now I, I really do try to reframe it and think about, okay, this is a small, insignificant part of my life. Um, I made a mistake. It's an error. I what Am I going to think about it for the rest of my life? No. What benefit does that have? And I try to move on from things a lot more than I have, I've used, you know, I used to do. And that's still to this day, you know, two years later, I think about this all the time. And I just think how grateful I am for that experience because it has, it has made my relationships better. Um, I'm more open with people. I, I feel more confident in myself. And if someone had told me, you know, 10 years ago, oh, you're going to, you know, do some shrooms and love yourself. I'd be like, shut up. You're kidding. What are you talking about? But genuinely, it's what I feel like it, it really it made me appreciate who I am as a person without looking at anything else, without looking at my grade point average, what my job is, you know, what type of car, like those variables don't matter to me very much. And that experience that I had with psilocybin really just put everything into perspective. And I, again, didn't think that that would happen, but. I would recommend to anyone, obviously, time and place, you know, know your setting, be in a comfortable environment, be with people who you're comfortable with if you want to do, you know, psychedelics with someone else. But just to really think about who you are in those moments, because when I did that, it really changed my outlook on myself. Wow. Yeah, that's some powerful stuff. I think what you're saying, a lot of people can definitely agree with and understand because like I mentioned before, we all have a little bit of a tendency not to be so nice to ourselves, a little bit critical. And some of us can be hypercritical on ourselves. So whenever you start having these good feelings, that immediate thought of like, well, I don't really deserve to feel this way, or this is going to end eventually starts to creep in really quickly. And I think psychedelics kind of bring a certain value because with compulsive disorders or anxiety disorders, we, we tend to fall into these sort of habits. So 
being able to break those habits and shake up our way of thinking and look at ourselves and look at the way that we interact with the world and look at the interconnectedness between us with fresh eyes and a new perspective, it really gives us a profound therapeutic benefit, even if at times it's really difficult. And you mentioned that like your difficult trip was before the one where you were able to really feel content in your body. And it makes me wonder if that was necessary, you know, that I'm, I'm a oh, big proponent God. that thinks that mushrooms and stuff like that, they find you whenever you need them. No, I completely agree. And I, I remember when that, when I was in that moment, all I wanted to do was get out of it because it was so overwhelming. I was so uncomfortable. I was just sad and angry, like all of these negative emotions. It was all I was feeling, but uh, no, I, I absolutely think that it not only was a catalyst to make me want to try shrooms again, because I figured, okay, that can't be it. Like I that's not what I'm going to end with. That's terrible. I don't want to do that. Um, but it did make me think about things differently. Um, and you know, my, when I, I was doing streams with my husband, then, you know, he had a great trip. His was great. And he said in that moment, the way that he saw me feel, it was as if he understood what was going on in my brain because he never, he had a hard time with that much like anyone else. We don't know what's going on in someone else's head. And I'm definitely someone who, you know, I'm open to talking about almost anything. Like I love sharing stories. I love hearing other people's stories, but for a lot of, you know, my childhood and everything, I kept things close. Like when I had something going on, I had to, it, it would be pried out. My poor parents had to, you know, really, really try to get me to open up and talk about things. And when I had that, you know, uncomfortable experience with psilocybin, I, I couldn't not express what I was feeling. So it was cathartic. It absolutely, I remember the next day I was tired, but I remember feeling like, wow, this is stuff that I have been holding in for God knows how long. And I was finally able to let it out. And I, I really do think that, um, you know, a weight was lifted off my shoulders and I, I don't regret anything about that experience. And I, like you said, like it finds you at the right time. And in the moment, it didn't feel like the right time. But when I look back on it, I think it was a very, um, a very monumental moment for me as a person. And also to see all the, you know, all the stuff that I was struggling with, because it came out right in that moment, right at that time. And I couldn't hide from it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm also really interested with your professional experience and the education you're undergoing. What are your thoughts on the inevitable psychedelic industry? What are your thoughts whenever you can find mushrooms available? I am very excited about it. Um, I have to say, I think it would be great not only, you know, for, I hate the word, you know, not recreationally, but for like adult use, you know, I think there should be a market for that. But also, like you and I discussed a little bit earlier, there there's so much room for it to be used medicinally. Um, I, like uh, like you said, major depression disorder, um, PTSD, just there's so many things that we could possibly use it for. And I know that we need more research and it's important to do clinical studies to see exactly, you know, what's the benefit, what's the risk. But because it's similar to cannabis, uh, you know, you're not taking a bunch of of painkillers or anything, you know, side effects, obviously they exist, but it's much safer and it allows people to not only experience something within themselves, but also in the context of the world. And that may sound a little bit strange, but I realized how insignificant me as a person, I, I just like not me specifically because I don't think I'm important, 
but how insignificant we each are individually. Because you think of the world, there is so much going on and it it makes our problems seem smaller. For some reason, for me, um, using psychedelics makes me realize, oh, I really overreacted about this thing. And I don't really know why. Like, why? what's so important about this? Nothing, nothing really. You know, it might be something that negatively happened or an inconvenience, but it's not that significant. And I think especially when it comes to, um, you know, people with uh, treatment-resistant depression and PTSD, to be able to use something that can reframe and and shift your thought process to maybe, you know, obviously with PTSD, it's hard to do that. You have trauma and trauma is not something that just goes away. But to be able to work through your trauma, maybe in a different mindset, I see it being incredibly beneficial, especially if you have someone there guiding you, you know, with like ketamine treatment that you can get done. There's someone there who helps you walk through it. You know, they'll, they'll bring you through the process to try to maximize the therapeutic potential. And I think with psychedelics, uh, like we, I think we know just a small sliver of the benefit that it can provide to us. So I am all for, all for bringing it to market. Um, like with cannabis, uh, hopefully big pharma doesn't get too involved. We don't need it to be politicized or, or, you know, people just using or selling or making for profit. But I do think that it could really open up a whole different world of treatment for not only mental health conditions, but who knows, who knows where it could go. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing a couple different models kind of arise with legalized mushrooms, either the adult use market where you can buy them at a dispensary, whatever the case may be. But I'm really looking forward to not only the clinical model with a guided therapist that's skilled and trained and has done this a number of times, but also any type of like resort or indigenous models, as long as we're able to make sure that the medicine really gets to the people that need it. Because I mean, there's a lot of pitfalls that we've seen in the quote unquote cannabis industry that I really don't want to see mushrooms to come to. But I'm a big believer of like plant spirits, and I don't think that the spirit of cannabis nor the spirit of psilocybin mushrooms can be tainted that way. Oh, no, I completely agree. I think it's they're, they're more, way more than just substances. Exactly. Yeah, some people think, oh, you're just like smoking weed. No, think about how, how incredible that plant is. Yeah. And when we learn more about it, you realize all of the different biological processes that are happening in it and what it can do. And again, we've still barely scratched the surface of what it can do. So I can't imagine once we really start looking into psychedelics more, what we can discover from that. And like I mentioned, I can't imagine that, you know, 20 years down the road, these won't be mainstream things that people are using to improve their life, improve their health because they have so much therapeutic potential. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're right on the cusp of it. So it's such an exciting time to be alive. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm very excited to see what happens. <laughs> Speaking of, I'm curious as to what you plan on doing or what your goals are after you finish your master's degree. Oh, good question. Um, I have a lot of interests. Um, I would be very interested in doing clinical research of some kind. Um, obviously, like I think I mentioned, you know, I was a history major. So before this program, I didn't have a huge science background. So I probably wouldn't be someone in a lab, but I would like to like coordinate trials or work for the IRB in some way. Um, but I also am a huge proponent of um, changing the cannabis landscape when it comes to equity and advocacy and our policies. I think we have 
come far. Uh, you know, we've made some strides in the last couple decades, but um, it's not an equitable industry, not even slightly. And I think that the fact that people are still getting arrested for cannabis is just a very a stain on our country, locking people up for using cannabis when someone, you know, a town over is spending $3 million to make a dispensary. It just, it doesn't make sense. It's a double standard. And I would be very happy to work in some sort of advocacy or policy role that helps rewrite some of the very flawed policies that we have. Yeah, I think that would be a great place, a great place to be. And I definitely see you doing that. Oh, thanks, Raven. Yeah, I hope so. Hey, I mean, the cannabis industry is crazy because there's so many different opportunities um, and it's sometimes hard to find them. Yeah, that's Uh, the thing. Right. Yeah. It's hard to kind of figure out where to look. So, again, I'm very grateful for the people I've met from from my grad program because just that networking, you learn so much about other opportunities that exist. Um, I somehow, and I don't really know how I ended up being able to do this, but um, someone had posted something on Slack about, oh, there's this this research project going on. They're looking for someone to help. And I randomly was like, hey, like this sounds cool. I would love to get involved. Um, so now uh, I, I'm helping Amanda Ryman um, with Kenigma and New Frontier Data. We're doing a... Um, a research paper on political paternalism with cannabis. So like qualifying conditions, medical cannabis identity, and um, ho- we're, we're almost done with it. And it's going to be published soon in the, uh, the international journal on drug policy. And again, never did I th- like, I didn't think that I'm going to be a co-author, which is amazing. Like, it's so cool to me. And again, like, you know, she did most of the work, obviously, like she's a brilliant woman. I'm so fortunate that I'm able to to work under her and learn from her. Um, but I wouldn't have had that opportunity if, you know, you didn't just go for it. And I think that people in the industry or people who want to get into the industry don't know where to start. And I think you just have to go for it. Just find something that's interesting to you. You'll pro- you could get denied. Someone could say no, but just go for it. Because when people are passionate about something, it translates. It's obvious when someone cares about what they are, are, you know, the industry that they work in or the specific role that they're looking for. And sometimes you don't always need that much experience. Um, so yeah, I mean, slightly off topic there, but I just like the fact that we can talk to other people in the industry who work in a different area of the industry is invaluable. And I think it's really great to be able to just put yourself out there try to see what opportunities exist that I'm interested in and just go for it. Worst that could happen is someone says no, and then you move on. Exactly. That's what I always tell my students whenever they're asking about getting into the industry. Cause I mean, every skill is transferable because it's a whole new world. Exactly. It's a whole new world that there's so many things for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, people who are lawyers, accountants, you know, security, there's it basically it has everything that every other industry could translate to cannabis in some way, shape, or form. Absolutely. And it's one of those things where if you do what you love, the money will come. We'll find happiness. Hey, exactly. And it's better to be happy anyway. So pick something you like and stick with it. (laughs) Exactly. And likewise, I'm very grateful for all the people that I've met throughout the program and everyone that I've been able to meet just talking about plant medicine and being able to dive into the research. So I really appreciate you, Darcy, being able to come on and share your story with us today. Oh, no, absolutely, Raven. Thank you for having me. It was, um, again, like I said, I'm pretty much an open book. I'll talk about anything, but 
I really am a firm believer in cannabis being life-changing, life-saving, and psychedelics just changing my entire outlook on life for the better. Um, And I don't know where I would be without either of those things. So I will happily advocate for either of them any day of the week. Okay, everyone, that's all we have for this week. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Darcy McGrady. She dives into how she was able to utilize plant medicine to treat her anorexia, anxiety, OCD, and depression. If you like this episode, please send it off to someone who you know would enjoy it. Additionally, we'd be eternally grateful if you were to go ahead and rate us five stars and follow us wherever it is you get your podcasts. For questions, comments, and community, feel free to head over to our official Instagram at plantsavemylife.pod. Until next time, everyone, have a beautiful week.